Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. My guest today is Kent Devereaux. Kent is the President and Chief Academic Officer of the New Hampshire Institute of Art, a private, nonprofit, accredited College of the Arts located in Manchester, New Hampshire. An accomplished educator and academic leader, Kent's career has taken him around the world and back again. Before assuming the presidency at the NHIA, Kent served as professor and chair of the music department at Cornish College of the Arts, where he also served as artistic director for the college's presenting series, Cornish Presents, and where he co-founded and directed the Seattle Jazz Experience. This earned him Downbeat Magazine's Jazz Education Achievement Award in 2014 and Cornish College of the Arts Distinguished Alumni Award in 2015. Kent also served on the faculty of both the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and the California Institute of the Arts for many years. In addition to his experience in traditional academia, Kent spent over a decade working in the technology and online education sectors, including stints as Senior Vice President of Editorial and Product Development at Encyclopedia Britannica, where he was instrumental in transforming that storied educational publisher from a print to online business model in the 1990s, and as Senior Vice President and Dean of Curriculum at Kaplan University, where during his tenure, enrollment at the for-profit online university uh, expanded from 350 to over 45,000 students. Kent's collaborations with other artists have been presented around the world, including performances at the Brooklyn Academy of Music's Next Wave Festival and the London International Theatre Festival. Kent's own work as a director, composer, and performance artist has also been presented at Chicago's Steppenwolf Theater, Seattle's On the Boards, and, and Minneapolis's Walker Art Center. Kent, thank you so much for being here today. What an honor. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm, I'm so delighted to do this with you. I'm, I'm really um, excited to speak with you, and um, I want to just kind of dive in here. Um, for people who are not, for, for people who are listening, not very familiar with the NHIA, um, could you describe maybe what are a few current projects that have you really excited? Yeah, um, NHIA, the New Hampshire Institute of the Arts, is uh, one of the 42 um, uh, Association of Independent Colleges of Art and Design uh, colleges around North America. And so um, very much like our peers at uh, Rhode Island School of Design or the Art Institute of Chicago or at Cornish College of the Arts, where I was previously, uh, we're all schools that are independent uh, for a nonprofit, uh, privately run, and uh, really with a focus on arts and design. And uh, then we have a few schools like uh, CalArts and uh, Cornish College of the Arts, which also has uh, music, theater, and dance. And uh, here at, uh, even though my background is in music and uh, with a a lot of uh, uh, deep love of, uh, of jazz, and, I, and that's how we, we met through kind of our, our mutual um, love of jazz. Uh, my focus here is really on arts and design as, as the college grows. It's a small college of uh, under 500 students here in Manchester. And uh, we're really looking to a lot of new partnerships um, in the community, uh, dealing with um, uh, kids, uh, which we've never really dealt with, kind of a whole youth arts initiative. And also just how we can take kind of art out of the classroom and into the community in some interesting uh, uh, positive ways that can really kind of help with um, economic development and uh, the kind of new creative economy in New England. This is all exciting and undoubtedly very challenging 
endeavors that uh, are going on there. Um, if you had to hone in on just a few of the bigger ones, bigger challenges that you're currently dealing with, what would those be? Well, uh, you know, there are those that are kind of specific to New England that I, I never thought of. Uh, my last um, uh, stint was in Seattle, last uh, six years, uh, with a city that has, a, I think, an average age of 28. Uh, here in New Hampshire, the average age of a resident is 52. Uh, New England is aging overall. Um, we've seen that in audiences in the performing arts, uh, you know, in Boston and elsewhere. Um, at the same time, we have this huge number of colleges throughout New England. Uh, New England's always been known as an academic center. So probably our biggest challenge is actually uh, demographics, the, the changing demographics of America that's affecting um, everything as we become a, a more diverse society. Uh, in New England, we actually become an older society. So um, uh, how do we attract uh, more uh, young people from around the United States uh, to want to come here to study um, and uh, hopefully stay here um, and kind of be part of uh, making it a culturally vibrant city. That is, that's probably our number one challenge uh, going forward in the next five, ten years. And that's a perfect segue into the next question I was going to ask you. When you kind of look at the next three, five, ten years, what are some of the milestone um, goals that you're working towards, including the one you just mentioned? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, number one for me is that uh, we historically have been a, an arts and design college um, that's been focused on New England. Uh, we're the third largest arts and design college in New England. Uh, but outside of New England, I would bet you hardly anyone even knows we exist, uh, which is interesting for an institution that's been around for 118 years. Uh, so my, my challenge right now is um, – uh, building programs that are attractive to students nationwide, and also uh, probably the, the second biggest challenge going forward is how fundamentally the arts design, by extension music and, and the other performing arts, are changing uh, due to the influence of technology. Um, I think that's a that's a big thing that we're we're looking at today in terms of how sculpture fundamentally changes with the in, the invention of 3D printing. Uh, very much the way that graphic design changed with the invention of the laser printer in, in the 1980s. Uh, and, you know, technology affects so many aspects of our lives. Um, we're looking at how it how it affects the arts, design, performing arts down the road in, in the future. And that's probably the other, the other big, uh, uh, you know, challenge we have going forward. Uh, you know, what is... What is uniquely human? Uh, uh, you know, what what does technology take over as, as our devices become more intelligent? As uh, um, the uh, uh, the nature of art itself changes because of the influence of technology, uh, that's going to be a big challenge for us in the next ten years. Yeah. Do you see there being a demand, or do you anticipate there ever being a demand for an arts college such as the one that you're spearheading right now um, to offer degree courses exclusively online. Is that something that is even possible given how hands-on a design degree or even uh, a music yeah. degree needs to be? Yeah. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a big question. Uh, uh, clearly, it's not so much as a, a question of do you offer things on online, um, but, you know, what do you offer online and what components? Um, so I think the big change that um, I, I like to view it, I, I was very lucky um, in the very early days of online education um, when the technology was not very good to actually start to prove the concept. And now we see today 
that a lot of large nonprofit or state universities have really taken that to um, the next level. Uh, like our, our partner here in, in, in town, uh, Southern New Hampshire University, our colleague here uh, in Manchester, they've done a very good job of that. Arizona State University have done that. And then in the arts, we're starting to see people, Berkeley College of, of Music, where you are in Boston, has done a very, very good job of, of taking the arts online in different ways. And our peer out in California, CalArts, is experimenting with some th- th- things. So there's a place for the arts and online, but um, it's the appropriate usage. Uh, we don't think that the the, the one-on-one uh, tutelage that uh, has kind of defined arts education historically is going to change. Uh, we don't think that the culture, uh, especially in arts and design, of, of uh, the maker culture that exists, that uh, that uh, by nature our, our, our students are, are the types that uh, like to get in, to, to mess it up, to, to to get dirty, to to get covered with paint, to, with clay, with uh, you know whatever uh, you know detritus that they 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 pull out and and pull into an installation piece or uh, pull into a new design piece. Those those are skills, and I think that tactile nature of the arts is never going to change very much like the actual live experience of hearing music is is never going to change. Uh, one just uh, exists uh, in parallel with uh, the kind of our online, uh, you know, digital personas. Yeah, um, there's been a lot of investment in virtual reality, and I haven't mm-hmm. heard really anybody talk about what that could mean for the arts, whether that uh, is something that could enhance or, I don't know, take away going to a live concert. Um, and I, But it, it has me thinking about possible applications for some of the things that you're talking about. Has there, have you come across any, I don't know, anybody talking about how virtual reality could impact the way students learn online, specifically in the arts? Oh, oh, oh definitely. Um I actually was just at, at a conference uh, three weeks ago down at MIT uh, that was really talking about um, uh, virtual reality, uh, the arts, uh, documentary filmmaking, uh, and how that's fundamentally, uh, you know, changing things and what the possibilities are for the future. Uh, at, at the same time, as, as I think one uh, one uh, presenter said, um, you know, one of the the big challenges with virtual reality going forward is how, how do you deal with a medium where nausea. Is is a is a problem for 25% of the people who uh, experience the virtual reality. So, there 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 clearly are some issues that need to be dealt with. But um, yeah, I think it, as you've seen in the first decade of uh, video games um, kind of uh, emerged into uh, you know away from kind of totally shoot 'em up type of uh, point of view type of games to things that really kind of challenge people in in different ways. And I think in this decade, we're starting to see the first instances of of using gaming technology and the whole process of gamification um, with the kind of first forays into some really interesting art um, projects. And I would expect that, you know, we're at that uh, a similar stage, but a little bit further behind in terms of virtual reality. And I would expect that in the next 20 years, you're going to start to see the first uh, really convincing virtual reality pieces that really stand on their own uh, as as art pieces, and also they have a, an appropriate usage in education. Um, but you know, we're we're still very early in a technology, very much like film. It was you know back at the you know 
we're 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 now past the the dawn of, of of film and maybe beyond the first feature films and maybe you know talkies have now emerged. We're just at, the, at that stage, but you know the true great art masterpieces have not been uh, developed yet. And I think there's some pretty exciting uh, opportunities in the next ten years, next uh, twenty years in both of these mediums uh, for them to be really used for artistic uh, purposes. And and I'm confident we're going to be seeing those that kind of things. So. For us, it's just uh, getting those kind of technologies in front of our artists and um, seeing how they start to push the technologies in interesting ways. I think it's certainly an exciting time. <laughs> yeah. I think, you, you know, you've got to just go with the changes that are happening and just constantly ask yourself, how can we use this? How can we use this as a tool? How, how You know, all the things that you just said. Um, it's just kind of interesting if I try and put myself in the mindset of a student what that could mean in the next 10 or 15, 20 years. And it, change is always tough, but I maybe I'm an optimist and I have to think that eventually the learning environment is going to be so much more exciting and dynamic with all this technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, um, the the learning environment uh, has is changing in some uh, – I guess I, w- I would characterize it as – uh, the big buzzword in um, uh, there, there are two big buzzwords in, in higher education today, and it's really the flipped classroom, uh, the concept that basically uh, the uh, the sage on the stage concept of the traditional lecture format, or even the Socratic back and forth dialogue in the classroom, is is changing because a lot of that, the reading, what happens, the the discussion happens online, and then the in-class components become very, very different. What that means for composition, for painting, uh, for sculpture, for uh, installation art, design going forward, you know, we're figuring that out. And I think the other the other big buzzword in, in higher education these days is, is the concept of the hybrid classroom, that there really is no um, delineation, that we have classes both here and that we offer with our um, sister institutions here in Manchester. Um, I can think of one in particular where uh, really there's synchronous learning happening in the classroom, there's video projection happening, there's video projection from another campus that's beamed in with an instructor at another campus, there's discussions that happen. I think all the kind of things that we're seeing in, uh, you know, sci-fi movies, you know, today are, are, are the reality of 10 years from now. And what's interesting for me is we now are moving into, especially in our undergraduate population, it's, uh, this is Generation Z. We're now beyond the millennials. We're into, uh, you know, what's, what's defined as Generation Z. And, and this is a generation that has, uh, been born and raised entirely where the internet always existed, when pretty much cell phones existed for their entire life. And the way that our students today approach, uh, finding out about things and, and exploring things, uh, is very different. It doesn't mean that they lose uh, fascination um, with uh, older technologies. You know, in in music that might be the piano. Uh, in in art, that might be you know encaustic painting or you know uh, different techniques that we we'd look at, at in the past. So uh, I think it's it's all fair game. It's just that they bring a different perspective uh, to it and where it's going to go. Um, you know, we don't know. That's that's the process of education is to kind of you know push those boundaries and explore. And I would imagine that's also one of the biggest challenges, too, is the way the antiquated, you know, sort of national system of education, uh, unfortunately, is, can't keep up with the current pace of technology. And um, 
it's I just learned a new term from you or a phrase from you, the concept of the did you call it a flipped classroom or a flipped Yeah, the the flipped classroom where flipped we really kind of yeah. yeah, we've really kind of, you know, turned the whole um the whole discussion on its head. And I, I think if if you look at what's happened over the last twenty years, you say that, well, okay, that's that's pretty representative of our society. Uh, we are no longer a society globally that depends upon um, a broadcast media. We are now a very much a, a society that engages uh, in social media, that um, there isn't even in the traditional broadcast mediums and, and news and politics and stuff, there's always a, a Twitter channel open or a Facebook you know, thing go, coming back and, and emails are flying back and forth. It's a dialogue. It's not a monologue anymore. Um, and that's messy. It just is messy, as we're finding on on the national landscape with our kind of political deadlock. Uh, as we're finding it, you know, this morning waking up and hearing about the the Brexit vote and and what's going on in the UK right now. Oh yeah, it, it, it's it's just very messy. Um, but that you know that's that's the world we live in, and, and higher education is no different. It's it's really at this point a, a, a much um, messier dialogue going on, um, a two-way street, and I think that's very good. Um, and I think it puts a, it's puts a greater uh, responsibility on higher education uh, because in the last 30 years, we have seen tuitions at colleges go up and up and up and up over the last 30 years. We've seen state funding, federal funding go down as a percentage over the last 30 years. Uh, we've seen student debt go up. Um, that can't continue. It's just, it's not possible. It's not sustainable. And, you know, arts and music schools have been, you know, some of the big, uh, they're, they're high labor uh, institutions. Um, they're very labor intensive institutions. So it puts a responsibility on us to say, hmm, how can we do it better, faster, cheaper? How can we really make our dollars, you know, every penny count? Because uh, uh, what we want to do is we want to graduate students uh, that have the skills that they need, uh, but more importantly, that they have to they have the, the right attitude and flexibility to basically graduate into a world where, uh, you know, we know they're going to, the, the nature of the jobs they're going to have are going to change over time. Uh, it just is um, just the nature. I mean, I, I just kind of think of the old joke of like, you know, the, you know, hey, great, you've got a BFA in theater and great, you're going to graduate to get a job as a waiter. And then maybe in, you know, 20 years, you'll, you'll actually get a, you know, bit part on law and order or something. And I think, you know, where we're at today is like we're looking at graduating into a world that basically, yeah, the job of a waiter may not even exist 10 years from now because it'll be entirely replaced by uh, artificial intelligence and robotics for all we know. So, uh, you know, what it, it comes back to the basic things. How do we be, how do we be more adaptable? What are the things we value as, as humans? And then what's, you know, h- how does art, you know, play a part in that? Um, you know, what are the humanistic qualities that we want to tease out of that? What what can we kind of contribute as part of the dialogue? And that's a, maybe a you know, like I said, a messier education. That's a broader, messier education dealing with some really big issues. That um, you know, uh, that's our job. That's our job to prepare uh, adaptable, flexible artists. You know, going forward, so they can kind of uh, roll with the punches. Yes, and I think what you just said this could be a good transition to something else I wanted to ask you about. I've read a few interviews you've done where you discuss the importance of partnerships, and I'm actually kind of curious and hoping to learn more directly from you about your thinking and how you approach partnerships. Can you talk more about that in detail? I mean, how do you approach new partnerships? What are 
some examples of partnerships you're currently exploring mm-hmm. um, or that you've recently been involved with? Yeah. Um, yeah, I will have to give credit here to uh, David O'Fallon, who's uh, for many years um, in the Minneapolis and, and Twin Cities uh, communities. Um, he was executive director of Arts Midwest uh, and for a number of years was um, uh, director of the McPhail uh, Music Center in um, in uh, Minneapolis. And, um, you know, David took a, um, a long-time institution, very very much like the institution I've inherited here, that's been around for a long time, was very well known within the community, but really had not had the, the national stature that the McPhail does in terms of music preparation and, and things. And really kind of took that from the ground up and really rebuilt it and then um, uh, built a whole new center and, uh, you know, beautiful um, new center. And it's really kind of put the, the place on some, some good footing. And I, I I was chatting with David one day and I said, David, how do you do this? How do you do this in five years, take this institution from this state to this state to basically, you know, transform it? And he just looked at me and he said, Kent, partnerships. If there's one thing you should remember, it's all about partnerships. I've got 80 different partnerships. Um, everything from insurance companies who want music therapy for, you know, a, a more cost-effective solutions for, for their, um, their patients because they've proven that music therapy is more effective as a, as a treatment mechanism than other things to basically partnering with universities, uh, to businesses, to, um, internships and a variety of different things. So, uh, I've taken that same philosophy when I was out in Seattle, um, at Cornish. I've taken that same philosophy here. Um, we've done it in some major ways in that one of the first partnerships we formed was um, with the University of New Hampshire. Uh, the University of New Hampshire's Manchester campus is a, a STEM-focused school, meaning it's all focused on science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, business, and marketing. And gee, guess what? We're you know five blocks away, and our focus is on arts and design. So. We, we structured a partnership where we now, um, uh, University of New Hampshire students stay in our residence halls um, because we had space. They didn't. They needed space. Uh, our students can take any UNH class for free. Uh, UNH students can take any NHIA class for free. So both of our campuses um, benefit from expanded offerings for our students, and the net cost to either institution is zero. So that means that we're offering more for zero cost increase, which means that's one more way that we can keep, you know, tuition down as as we go forward. And then we've, you know, we've done a number of really uh, small partnerships. We've established, uh, since I've been here, 70 uh, institutional internship partners with both for-profit and non-profit um, uh, uh, companies and institutions. And we've changed our curriculum so um, we're the only arts college nationwide that requires three semesters of business and marketing for the arts uh, for all of our students, regardless of their major. We're the only college nationwide that requires arts and design college nationwide that requires a year-long internship for all of our students, regardless of their major. So it could be anything from uh, community murals projects that we're working with the city parks department to um, being um, web design and communication for uh, you know over at uh, Dyne or Autodesk or Texas Instruments or some of the other high tech uh, companies that have their you know East Coast operations here. So uh, it's it's really it's, at all aspects of of the organization. It's how we can basically break down walls from the arts into businesses that may not ordinarily think of artists. 
um, being, um, you know, contributing members to society. They're still suffering under the Van Gogh myth, you know, or something. Uh, and it's also breaking down walls between the college and the community, the, the city of Manchester. It's about 110,000 people. Um, how we can actually make a difference, um, the kind of classic uh, town-gown relationships that many colleges struggle with. We've basically said, own it. The city is our campus. Let's uh, let's own it. Let's really partner with everybody we can. And it's been um, it's been tremendously um, uh, exciting um, and uh, you know a little different, uh, a little different. Um, you know we get we get called into for just about everything at this point, um, whether it's uh, problems with homelessness or you know uh, issues in terms of how, how we can improve the the health system of the city and the state um and you wouldn't think that an arts and design college gets called into those things but um now we are now we're 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 at the table and we're part of that discussion and uh, hopefully we can contribute you know good ideas absolutely yeah and and I should point out you've only been there has it been over a year at this point or just I think we just uh, last week we just uh, passed the year and a half mark. So yes, I'm still uh, I'm still a newbie uh, to <laughs> well, New Hampshire. Uh, congratulations, though, on, on some yeah. of the things you're talking about. That's really exciting. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, it's it's a great place to be. And it's been it was an exciting year to move here. Uh, you know, of course, right in the middle of the um, uh, political. Uh, the primaries and all all that going on this last year. So it's been um, it has really been a whirlwind of activity. Well, I've got to ask you: Are you now a New England sports fan? <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we are. We, we are still going to be smarting over that interception. So uh, yes, uh, that grieved me as soon as I got here. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a little while before I become a Pats fan. So yes. All right, fair enough. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, you're kind to you to indulge me there. Um, you previously served as artistic director for Cornish College of the Arts presenting series. And most of our listeners for this podcast are, in fact, presenters. Um, if you could go back in time when you first began that aspect of your career, what, what advice would you give to yourself as sort of a first-time presenter? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah there's um, – uh, oh, my. Uh, uh, a little bit of abandon, not knowing what you're getting yourself into. And I, as part of me, it says it's, it's kind of good to not know what you're getting yourself into because you just go do it. And, uh, um, but I think, you know, my, my advice is, uh, it's, it's just how important it is to, um, in, in that same vein to, to build partnerships. In today's world, you, you cannot go it alone. You've got to figure out how to, how you can partner with, uh, other organizations in your community, in your region, uh, uh, be open to it, be uh, extremely adaptable. Uh, the more that, uh, presenters can, um, uh, collaborate with like-minded institutions in their area, even people that they may compete with on other things. Um, let that go. Let that go. It's really uh, – I, I have found that every step of the way, we were able to partner with different organizations and stretch our dollars, do things that we just wouldn't have been able to do on our own, uh, had to rethink things you know, completely differently in terms of how we went about doing it. Because at the end of the day, it's all about we all have that shared interest of, like, what are we going to do to actually make an impact in the community? What are we going to do to actually get the arts that we, we love, that we're passionate about, out there and try to get more people involved in them, uh, expose it to new audiences and do, doing some new things? So I think in, in my years running the, the series out there, 
we tried a lot of different things and we partnered with a lot of people and it was um you know at times exhausting but um you know extremely beneficial cuz you know for a small series the ability to be able to kind of do a, a lot of work in a short amount of time and get the work out there uh for people to hear and people to see is uh, just tremendously satisfying um you know i mean it you know i think every, anybody who's the presenter knows that it, it, it's it all is worthwhile on on the night of the performance when you're actually kind of you know you've worked so hard to make something happen and actually kind of you know share in, in the in the joy of of what it is you're presenting but also share in the joy of really kind of opening people's eyes opening people's ears to to stuff that maybe otherwise they would have never had an opportunity to to experience and and that was definitely my my experience uh, in in the presenting world. Well, I should know the answer to this question, but is there currently a performing arts series at uh, the NHIA? No, there is not. Um, uh, and I, I think the, the you you hit the the operative words is that currently uh, not. Uh, but uh, you can you can bet that you know one of our goals here is, is as we um, expand in the next uh, you know five ten years here, uh, um, bringing the performing arts into Manchester in a much more substantive way is going to be a, a major part of it. It's you know it's it's uh, it's absolutely essential to to have the kind of cultural vitality that we want to have in, in the city, and we're um, uh, you know so close to so many other cities here in in New England. It's 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 a quick drive from from pretty much any any. Any other gig uh, for musicians in New England, so it's it's quite nice. Well, I'm happy to hear you say that. Please keep us in mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, uh, we will. Yeah. How has your own background uh, as a composer influenced your role as an administrator in the arts? Is there do you see parallels there? What have you kind of noticed about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It is. It's a funny thing because. Um, I know quite a few composers who are college presidents and, and deans, and um, I, I think um, part of it is, as composers, we're used to um, thinking conceptually in terms of the big picture, and then breaking that down and saying, "Okay, then great. What are, what are the what's the instrumentation I need for that? How, how, what are the elements I need to kind of pull together on that? What's it going to take?" And also, I think we're you know, as a composer, especially someone like me who's used to working. Um, uh, you know, I started out in jazz. Was very, very fortunate. You know, very young to have exposure to a lot of people, some some great mentors, and then for you know me to be able to kind of develop an interest that was really in uh, kind of a experimental music theater and contemporary opera. Uh, the type of projects that I worked on um, took uh, years to come to fruition. Um, so by the time I made the decision about 10 years ago to say, okay. I really can't do both at the same time. I I'm going to have to, you know, put the composing aside and and to make uh the space of mind so I can really focus um on uh, what I need to achieve. Uh I was comfortable with that trade-off because uh, in many ways the actual uh work that I do in terms of pulling together all the elements, all the actors, all the uh, you know, the overall through line of where we need to go uh, is actually conceptually very, very similar to composing. Um, and I kind of approach it the same way. Um, so it's it's very, very satisfying. And at the end of the day, um, you realize if you're able to enable um, other people to realize work and, and get more work out there and make a, a bigger impact, uh, you know, that's that's what it's about. Well, I've always really admired your trajectory and the different 
exposure you've had to some pretty distinct disciplines that are completely converging right now. And so this is a transition. I want to have you talk just briefly about your experience in technology, what it was like at Encyclopedia Britannica, and mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. how has that influenced your decision-making process now? Yeah, um, you know, I, I guess I, um, I have been very fortunate to have kind of a Walter Mitty kind of or, you know, kind of existence where um, uh, I have seen probably the the two biggest influences on me in terms of how I approach the challenges we face in higher education and the arts has been one personal and one professional. Uh, The personal one has a professional uh, dimension, and that is that um, my father-in-law was a a senior executive at Kodak and uh, for many years, uh, a lifelong Kodak person. Uh, My wife's from Rochester, New York, a Kodak kid. And, um, you know, I remember for many years up until the early 80s, you know, I was saying, you know, hey, you know, Ray, the future is digital. It's going digital. And I remember many times you know, going, oh, no, no, Kent, film is going to be here forever. It's always going to be here forever, you know. Oh, and wow. I said, no, 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 it's not. And um, that business changed within three years. It went from 75% film to 25% film in three years. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So, I, I read a lot of case studies in my own yeah. You know, the master's program I did uh, specifically on Kodak. Unfortunately, it's a it's a textbook yeah. example now. Sorry, but go yeah. Ahead. So you know, seeing seeing that, then when the '90s came along, I got a call. I had uh, been involved in computer uh, music. I was lucky to study with John Chowning at uh, Stanford. Um, I grew up outside the Silicon Valley. Uh, many of my friends uh, went on. Um, did a lot of stuff um, in the first generation um, uh, in music and technology, uh, synthesizers and samplers and a variety of, of things there. And so I was very fortunate to be around that, but always as, as a musician. Uh, but, you know, I was curious enough that I dabbled. And so given that, I started to kind of, you know, program and start to do some other things, got involved in it. Um, and um, so always kind of kept one foot in that over the years and when the 90s rolled around and um you know one day i got a call in january of 1994 that said uh you know we understand you know something about this new internet thing um you know i i took that as an opportunity to do some consulting while i was still teaching one thing led to another and i was ultimately asked in the late 90s to then uh, do a turnaround at encyclopedia britannica and very much like kodak they had waited for years and years and years and in, in their case uh, they'd waited too long, uh, but we really had to go through a gut-wrenching transformation to take a business which had been losing money for 10 years uh, and transform it completely from being entirely print to entirely online uh, in a three-year time frame. Uh, and I always um, you know, tell people, I say, if I, if I can survive that, I can survive anything uh, because that's, that was a business that had um, operated in, I think, 14 different countries, uh, had 7,500 employees, and by the end of that transformation, it was less than 500 employees, but it was profitable, and all the revenue was entirely online. Uh, and it's profitable to this day. Uh, it has a variety of businesses it owns, and it's in, in the publishing and, and database marketing, um, the, the database publishing field. And um, But it, to me, both of those experiences were real bellwethers. They, they said to me, you can have an absolutely outstanding product. You can be top of your game. Uh, 
Kodak was, you know, the best brand. I mean, it was always Kodak, Coca-Cola, and Encyclopedia Britannica, and all these global studies in terms of brand awareness. I, I would bet you today, if you did the same survey with uh, Generation Z, uh, they would know who Coca-Cola is, but the other two brands, they may not even have heard of them. And uh, meanwhile, entirely new brands like, uh, you know, Amazon <laughs> have emerged out of that. And so it's it's interesting, and it tells me that no one is immune. I mean, you've got to change with the times. Um, and if you what you really value is at the heart of you know in in this case higher education, well, what is it you want to preserve? You know, what do you want to preserve, and what do you have to let go of? What do you have to basically say? Okay, we're not throwing away our our our, our heart and soul. We're not throwing away our, our ethics. We're basically saying, what do we want to preserve? That's really uh, the whole point of why we we make art, uh, why we make music, what do we want to do with it, and um, what needs to change because just the times have changed and the delivery mechanisms have changed, and I, and I think we we saw that in the music industry. The music industry failed to see that. It just it, it's fought it tooth and nail at every step of the way, and uh, you know I think as someone said you know if your business model is based upon suing your customers who are you know copying your songs. I mean, at that at that point, it's it's just beyond insane. It's it's just ludicrous. So, it, it, at this point, it's it's you know we, we see glimmers now of, of where we may be going in the music industry. That so it's finally, but it, it took 20 years for the music industry to make a transformation that really should have happened uh, much more effectively if there had been um, you know better leadership, uh, in, you know, in in some of those major companies. So, that's a very good example. And just to your point about. The importance of partnerships. I'm sure you've read a lot about the Open Music Initiative now. That's, that's yep. Yeah, I think that you know I I really applaud you know Berkeley stepped into this in a major way. MIT's been doing stuff for years. Now that we, there's been so much work done in in recent years, um, and I think it's it's finally taking hold. Um, that we're going to see glimmers of hope. But I, I got to tell you, three years ago I met with the heads of three of the major publishers. And I asked them what they were going to be doing in terms of um, formats going forward, in terms of publishing, in terms of writing, and they were all clueless. And that was three years ago. Mm. Um, so, but I'll tell you, I also met with the heads of all three of the major, um, you know, publishers in the educational higher education market when I was at Kaplan, and uh, I think I had those first meetings in 2003, maybe 2004. Um, you know, the the major multi-billion dollar companies because we were a major customer. And I said, what's your way forward in terms of, of e-books? And they were all clueless then. And I thought, oh my God, these guys are going to get wiped out by Amazon. These guys are... <laughs> and, 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 you know, at a certain point, if you've got people at the tops of companies that are not listening to the generation, you know, millennials or the generation Z, if they're not in touch with where... You know, people are going, and I think this is, you know, you're you're in trouble. And I think this is that's the great lesson of um, of somebody like a Steve Jobs, who was, you know, uh, Steve Jobs and I are, are the same age. Uh, you know, we grew up together in the same area. You know, very much. And I think the great brilliance of their Steve Jobs was he was able to kind of perceive and watch people, very much like any good designer. And say, hmm, young people are doing something different. What is there an opportunity? We need to change. And here's what. And you know, it wasn't like you know, it was he, he was perceptive enough to basically kind of uh, ascertain what those changes were at that time. And I think any 
anybody is, uh, in whether it's in business, in life, in higher education, if you're not perceptive enough and open to listening um, and observing, then you're going to kind of, you know, miss the boat uh, on you know, where it's going. So, um, did you ever get to meet Steve Jobs? Uh, yes, I did actually. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, is uh, I'll tell you my, my techie anecdote. Uh, only people who are techs would ever, would ever get it. Um, but, uh, yes, um, I, when I went to college, um, I was, um, I went to college young and I, I was studying, uh, music and I was at that point had been, um, actually I was very, very influenced by, um, uh, early on by, uh, by, um, a lot of fusion, John McLaughlin and Chick Corea and people like that and seen them and, and uh, so I had uh, very early on had bought, um, you know, a, a very, a very early model Mini Moog uh, synthesizer and several other things and started exploring that. And when I went to college, I was very into that and really kind of explored electronic music and where it was going at that time. And um, I ended up with a roommate who was an electrical engineer. And um, he said, oh, let's go to this uh, microcomputer conference, the second microcomputer conference. And, um, you know, this is the days where everything was built by hand and you program things by, like, uh, flipping switches on the front of a computer, you know. And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Kind of sounds kind of geeky to me, but I'll go. And uh, that was the microcomputer conference that uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were um, showing their brand-new Apple computer there. And I, you know, chatted with Woz and, and Jobs at that conference, and Jobs was kind of obnoxious, you know. Uh, he was a salesman. and uh, But it was really impressive what they did. And for me, who was kind of like, you know, I would describe myself as, okay, you know, early adopter, you know, technologically literate, but, you know, a layperson, not from that engineering world. And I remember on the ride back with my roommate, I said, boy, that Apple computer, that's really revolutionary. That's going to change things. And he looked at me and said, oh, no, it doesn't adapt to the to the S100 standard bus of, of that era. And, you know, I, you know, years later, I, I was kind of like, yep, yeah, and let's look how your prediction, prediction uh, you know, uh, panned out. And I think for me, it was very much that same thing of like, you know, the 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 very much like in music the you know or in arts in general that the the breakthroughs always happen on on the on the periphery they always happen at the tangent of, of very different uh, disciplines and the ability to kind of kind of step out of the side of the mainstream and maybe chart some new territory not different you know so different that people can't see the connection but different enough that it basically kind of uh, you know moves into some new area and i think that was the brilliance of at that time, and for me, it just really opened up my eyes to the possibility. It was the first time ever that I didn't think of a computer taking up an entire room like like refrigerators because in, in those days in sci-fi films, that's what they always were. Nobody ever thought that they would actually be something you would put in your pocket and you know walk around with a, a supercomputer slash cell phone in your pocket and have access to anybody in the world at any time. I mean, that was, you know... Uh, Unimaginable, even to the most uh, you know strangest uh, sci-fi film of the day. So that's a great story. I, I think I read about some of those trade shows in the Walter Isaac's biography of, of Jobs. I'll have to check that out. All I can remember uh, is it was 1977. So all I can remember is that it was at the San Jose Convention Center, and that the carpet was 
orange shag. That's all I can remember of that. I'm like, oh, yeah, man, that was really just this big orange shag carpet in this gaudy convention center with all these people. It was it was a little bit like a, a vape con- convention today, you know. It was kind of that same era. So. <laughs> wow. Um there's so much more I'd love to ask you, but in the interest of time, maybe we can just wrap up with the, this last question here. Um, mm-hmm. What's one book you've gifted to somebody recently? Um, yeah, this is, this is interesting. I've actually uh, recently gifted a, a, a number of my faculty with a book, which is called uh, Small Teaching by uh, Jim Lang. And so James Lang is a as a professor down here at Assumption College in Massachusetts, and um, uh, Jim is a, a very gifted teacher, um, and he really advocates in the book for us getting back to small things, uh, things that really can kind of cut through and make a difference. Because there's a lot of you know we're competing with a lot of other things, um, especially with our students, um, uh, are competing for their attention. And what are the kind of small, simple things that we can do that are really just, you know, five minutes at the, at the beginning of a class or, you know, five minutes at the end or or maybe a, a simple technique that happens, you know, between things. And for me, that really kind of – it cut through because, you know, that's that's at the at the center of, of good teaching is that ability to make that connection. And, um, you know, I remember years ago um, – Studying when I studied jazz piano, I studied with Art Art Landy, and Art, uh, such a a gifted pianist and teacher, and and you know, uh, you know, probably many of your listeners have every never even heard of Art, but Art was you know uh, at a certain time was really one of the, the the prominent jazz pianists on the on the landscape in the U.S. And Art, you know, decided in, in the early '80s to basically you know take a different path, and and um, you know, uh, has been at Naropa University ever since. Uh, the Buddhist University in, in Boulder, Colorado. And, um, you know, Art was so perceptive, and I remember that that, that simple thing of basically, you know, uh, working with him and playing something and ha- having him stop you on a phrase exactly where your concentration drifted. Mm. Um, and the ability for someone to basically read your mind by what you were playing, to say, it was great up to there, and at that moment, on that note, it drifted. You went elsewhere. You weren't there. And I was like, guy, how does he do that? How is he spot on every time? And it's that ability, that, that connection to make with a student and um, to kind of force uh, force change or to actually, uh, I guess, inspire students to want change to be their best. Uh, and I think that's that's why um, what resonated me, with me with this recent book uh, by James Lang about small teaching. Just simple well, techniques. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan of the expression little hinges swing big doors. Yeah. Yep. So But I, I will have to check out this book you mentioned. Yeah. So Yeah. Well, Ken, thank you so much for your time. This is a really great conversation here. I, I certainly learned a lot. I have no doubt other people listening will have learned a lot. And um what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they wanted to reach out? Uh, do you have a website um, or just through the and they, the uh, institute's website there through through NHA. Uh, welcome to you know just uh, reach out to me via at NHA. It's just my name, Kent Devereaux, all one word at nhia.edu, or um, you know follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm still tweeting out on uh, almost a daily basis uh, at uh, NHA NHIA Prez P R E S. 
Um, so I'm on both and, and, and kind of batting stuff back and forth with people all the time on Twitter. So Great. Well, thanks again, and enjoy the weekend. Great. Well, thanks so much for asking me, Mike. Uh, take care. Absolutely. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.